welcome to the Media People Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Genova. To catch up on past episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash mediapeoplepodcast and follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova. Asking Corinne Capreni to name her favorite country is kind of a loaded question. Why, you ask? Well, have you ever been to 72 different countries? Hell, can you even name 72 different countries without using the internet? Corinne can, and she drove through 36 of them this past summer. That's right, I said drove. 33,497 kilometers from London to Mongolia, and then from Mongolia back to Belgium. She's the co-founder of Offtracks, a company that blends extreme tourism with charitable causes. When she isn't crossing continents in her Subaru XB Crosstech, she's pitching, closing, and executing industry-leading media creativity initiatives at Bell Media. Thanks, Corinne, for talking today. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, let's go right to the beginning of it. You're not from Canada, are you? I am not. I'm actually an Italo-Canadian. I'm from Pavia, Italy, nearby Milan. Oh, interesting. Uh, what was it like growing up in Italy? Uh, it was interesting to grow up in a Canadian and Italian family at the same time. Um, always like talking two languages around the table, uh, growing up with some Italian values, but also Canadian values. And I guess that's why I'm here today. Kind of, so like, what was the difference between those values? I mean, my grandparents are Italian. My parents were sort of raised semi-Italian, but it kind of becomes diluted as it goes generation by generation. Uh, I mean, having one parent being Italian and one being Canadian, what was the difference? Well, my dad's Italian, so it's strong values. He, you know, would decide more like as a daughter should go, for example, to law school versus another school. Well, my mom would be like, oh, let's give Corinne like the chance to do what she wants and go spend summers in Canada. So the freedom versus what, you know, a parent really wants. And Italian parents has strict rules what they want. The success is the most important one. No, I know what you're saying. Growing up, my dad, he was a laborer and all people, all he knew was, oh, you've got to either be a doctor or a lawyer. Anything other than that, it's, it's kind of a failure. But it's funny the way you brought it up. You mentioned that your dad wanted you to go to law school and your mom was like, do whatever you want. And that's kind of the best way to summarize the way your life's been. Uh, so tell us a bit about uh, university life because you did go to law school. I ended up uh, giving up and I went to law school at the University <laughs> of Pavia. You consider that giving up? <laughs> I gave up because the pressure was either to go to law school, to business school, or to med school. And out of the three, I picked law school. Um, so I did my law school. Um, I didn't do the bar exam because that was kind of like my put my foot to the ground. And once I finished it, last exam, I remember like walking into home and I said, that's it. I'm done with law school. A month from now, I'm on first plane to Canada, and I'm going to start all over again. And I did exactly that. I was very, you know, minded, and I went to Quebec City. I did Université Laval, and I went through um, international politics, and I ended up doing a master in PR. I had a goal in mind, which was to become an ambassador and, you know, got kind of lost along the way, but, you know, that was the initial goal. That's not a bad job, going to become an ambassador. It's a great way to just kind of, I don't know, end up living somewhere. And I mean, unless something goes wrong between relations in the two countries, it's, it's a pretty sweet gig. But you didn't, when you went into international politics, you technically didn't deviate from law too, too much. That's because that's kind of the next step for a lot of, say, lawyers that have political ambitions. But it seems like with public relations, that was kind of, you would you say, dipping your toe in the marketing pool or the media pool? It kind of opened the gate to that for sure. 
um, my I did an internship doing my master um, in public relations, which ended up being the FINA World Cup. That was kind of my internship, which opened up the the way into the media environment. I never considered media before. And FINA, really quickly, you're talking about Swimming World Cup, right? The Swimming World swimming Cup. Swimming World Cup. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so what happened when you were working on FINA that kind of opened uh, your eyes or opened the door to that? I started, well, the sports environment, definitely a fun environment to work with. Um, and I remember like working with people that were all into communications, into marketing. A lot of them come came from the, the media industry and one of them in particular actually is well the marketing and communication manager for the Canadian Montreal so the hockey team so it was all a mix and match of people either working in sports or into the media because that was the need for the FINA World Cup was that part of your gig at Enbridge because you mentioned you were in there as well that was after um I went after the FINA World Cup I was trying to find a job. I was trying to kind of put everything that I wanted into one spot. It was kind of difficult. I actually ended up out of the blue going to live in China. And as in China, I was in China, I was actually looking for jobs back in Canada, weird enough. And there was a job opening in marketing for Enbridge in Edmonton. So I moved to Edmonton into marketing. So wait a minute, if we've got, we've got the whole <laughs> map right, it started in Pavia, just outside of Milan. You ended up in Quebec City. Yep. Then you went to is that that's where the FINA World Cup was. Was right? in Montreal. In Montreal. Then to China. Then to China. And then back to Edmonton. Yeah, correct. Uh okay, but what drew you to China? Because that's if you're gonna go discover yourself, that's a rediscover yourself, that's an interesting place to land. It was an interesting place to land. The job that I was doing was not interesting to me. I ended up teaching English, which is my third language to yeah, Chinese speak a, kids. <laughs> yeah, you speak a lot of languages. Like how many like just as a segue, how many languages are you fluent in? Four fluent. Four fluent. So we got English, obviously, French, Italian. And What's Spanish. That? And Spanish as well. You learning anything else on the side? I am. I'm taking German classes every Wednesday night now. Oy vey. Is that German? <laughs> I have no idea. Danke is. <laughs> Danke is. My wife's half German, so I get that from her sometimes. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so you, after China, you came back and you were at Edmonton working in Enbridge. Uh, and I mean, what it was like there, I imagine that marketing for, I mean, a gas company or a petroleum company, uh, a lot different than say, I mean, working on the FINA World Cup. It was absolutely different. I def I actually did learn how pipelines work, which we know one thing's like, I had no idea. So I sat into the room control and kind of learned it all. It was really far from anything that I really wanted. Working with engineers, the way they do marketing is a very different way that, you know, media does marketing. So it was really hard, but it was a um, strong learning curve, especially when you're trying to market such things as pipelines or gas or oil and, and things like that. So it was, it was a good school, very hard, um, but it kind of opened the door to, you know, where I am right now. Um, after Enbridge, I got hired by a company in Quebec City that's called Creaform that does 3D scanning devices for companies like Enbridge, for pipelines, for cars, for everything like that. So I kind of stayed into the engineering world, world. And funny enough, they put me in a marketing and communication position. So they saw the potential of like, yeah, she can market these things, but she can talk and she can do PR to, you know, other companies that we need her to. And they put me one time onto this, they wanted to basically start me to start buying advertising for their own company. And the first um, magazine that I thought of 
was on Root Magazine, which is the Air Canada magazine. So a mm. lot of B2B, a lot of business people. I was like kind of looking for the outlets for business people, not only engineer magazines, but also something else and a little bit different. So I ended up calling Spafax to buy some ads on the actual magazine and ended up landing a job there. Okay. <laughs> and what was it like working at, at Spafax then? Because a lot of people, when they're thinking about media, they think of kind of the more popular forms. They're thinking of mainstream print, radio, TV, digital. But this is, I mean, when you mentioned like On Route Magazine, it's, it's captivating, but it's very unique too. It's very niche um, and at the same time challenging. Uh, working on, on print, first of all, is challenging as there's always the deadline is always coming at you. There's no way we can go to print with white pages. No, no, and- that's half the fun though. I mean, when I, okay, when I was hawking TV, that was, I used to really love saying to buyers and planners, hey, this hockey game is going to happen with or without you. You've got to get the creative to us. When I made the jump to digital and we had a contract starting or we had the campaign starting Monday, I'd be like, we'll get it to you Wednesday. I'm like, what do you mean Wednesday? We're already two days in. So you had to have loved that part. Well, you used to tell them that plane's going to fly off and you're not going to be on it. <laughs> true that, true that. Uh, and then after SpaFX, where did you go from there? So from SpaFX, I actually, the company moved me to Toronto. There was an opening in Toronto, which I was interested. And when I landed in Toronto, um, the team was very much different. It was a different game. I was more familiar with the Montreal, you know, advertising landscape, the agencies and whatever. And it was like, bit of a transition into the Toronto market and so I started looking at jobs more interested in to see what was open and I landed a job as actually a sales coordinator so I kind of went down a notch but at Astral Media which originally was you know the the company that I always like would have liked to work with because it was well-known, well-loved especially in the Quebec market. Oh in their heyday they were the biggest thing in the Quebec market I mean that's where everyone wants to work in Quebec before they were uh, scooped up by Bell. And yeah, that's where I got to know you when you were working at Estrell. Because uh, apart from being the sales coordinator and then the media creativity person, part of your job was to follow the sales reps around and say, you can't sell the website like that. What are you doing? That's not the way things go. Uh, which I was kind of guilty at uh, of doing a number of times. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but anyways, t- uh, when you made the jump after that to a media creativity executive, uh, tell us a little bit about what that role has been like for you. It's a very interesting role. I think it matches the fact that I do. I am a creative person. I do love the sales portion of it, the challenge of trying to selling something that the client might have not asked for, but once you show them, then they see the potential into it. There's many tweaks and many backs and forth, and it takes longer than sometimes than just selling brand, but that's the fun part. It is more of a marathon because you have to get in there, especially with doing integrations. Correct me if I'm wrong. They really want to be in the show. You got to be in talking to them months in advance before someone says action on set. There are no quick kills there. Well, just for example, this year I worked on a project that was actually, we started in 2013 and just aired like January 2015. So it's well ahead of the game. And to get a client on board, not e- even before the year they're actually about to spend the, what a two years after they're about, you know, eventually spend money with you, that's a, even a bigger challenge. I think it's just the more appealing you make it, the better it is. It's all about selling technique. Yeah. Uh- has it changed much since you became a media creativity person the last couple of years? 
it's changed my uh, a lot. There's uh, you know obviously media is always evolving. The you know social media is a big component. Mm -hmm. You know initially it was almost like a fight, constant fight with them. Now it's more like how can we integrate it into more into what we do instead of fighting it off. How to actually blend it into what we're doing. Um, and definitely the clients are changing, their requests are changing. It's all more about branded content instead of just like doing more brand. There's brand exposure, but the branded content, they want to like seamlessly be into our own native content at the end of the day. So that's even a bigger challenge internally. How can we, you know, stay true to ourselves, but also make money with it too. What brands, because Bell's got quite a wide portfolio and it grew too when, when they bought Astral and you got absorbed into the, the bigger company. But what brands do you work on specifically? Um, I work on a lot of automotive brands. Or no, um, like I mean like oh. like media brands per se. Oh, media brands. <clears throat> yeah, like TV stations. The TV stations? Like um, right across the board, do you have a certain specialty? I work mainly on all the French specialty networks that Bell Media owns. So like Canal V and ZTLA, the discovery version of Quebec. So it's all more like specialty TV stations. Okay. Uh, and next thing I wanted to chat with you about was Optrax, something really interesting. We could do a separate podcast on Optrax altogether. And if anyone's listening, if you want to follow along with this next story really well, open up a, a new browser and type in optrax.ca and have that going as you listen to the rest of this because Optrax is a, a, a pretty amazing thing. Uh, okay, so Corinne, you're the co-founder of Optrax. Uh, give us the elevator pitch uh, in 30 seconds as to what Optrax is, if you can condense all of it into 30 seconds. So Optrax is basically adventures well off the beaded tracks. Basically, it's my teammate and I, we try to do adventures that are a bit, well, crazy for a lot of the people. And the challenge is, let's do them and also let's raise money for charity. What, what charities are you guys raising money for? So last year we raised money for Make-A-Wish Canada, Go Help in Mongolia. The year before we raised money for Frank's um, water project in, in India. And this year we'll be raising money for the Ronald McDonald's house here in nice. Canada. And I wanted to say, if you're going to offtracks.ca, it's offtracks with an X. Offtracks, one word, X, dot C-A. Uh, okay, so this goes back to your passion for traveling. Obviously, we've established you've lived in a number of different countries. How many countries have you visited in total? I have been to 72 countries, and I've lived in three. Wow. I, I don't even think many people can name 72 countries. <laughs> Better spell Tajikistan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so going to your travels, let me ask you a really, really quick question. Uh, which country was the most unique or the most overwhelming for you? And then the follow-up is, which one was the most underwhelming? You kind of went in there expecting so much, and you were like, oh, you're nothing like we read in the pamphlet or in the Fromer's Guide. Um, just last summer, uh, we bordered the Tajikistan-Afghanistan border. So that was a true eye-opener. Everything that we see in the media escape, everything is bombing Afghanistan. What we saw was just like amazing, beautiful country with incredible kids and people just very warm welcome. Um, so definitely that's an highlight. I wish to go back and actually go through backpacking through Afghanistan. Um, so that's what things that off tracks do. Um, the more underwhelming country I've been to, um, I'm not a big fan of Russia. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think they're a fan of us either. Um, underwhelming in the sense that we felt always unwelcome there. Mm. 
So, and you got a great story about Russia. Didn't it have to do with visas expiring and then getting held up at the airport and being forced to expire? Like, you got to tell us that one because that was when you told me that a couple of years ago, I couldn't believe what I was listening to. We went backpacking through Mongolia, China, and Siberia, let's face it. And once we got, you know, throughout like Russia and Siberia, we got back to take our first flight back to Beijing to come back to Canada. We get to the airport and then we realized that our visa was expired three days ago. So obviously we got stuck at the border. Jess goes first, I go second. And then here we are stuck with this big, like I called him the pancake hat, this general of a military person comes with this massive hat and says that we're not going anywhere until we repay our visa. So that was a learning experience that landed us to go to Vladivostok on the Kamchatka Peninsula. Basically, the closest thing to that is Alaska. So we're almost back home, but it was a big detour and it was actually hilarious because when we tell people, and I remember um, emailing our boss back in Toronto saying, I might not be home <laughs> in time to come back to work on Monday. I remember hearing about that email. We're like, what is going on with her? And then you told us the story after. Uh, going back to off tracks though, um, tell us about your first race. So our first race was uh, 4,300 kilometers across India from the southern tip to the northern tip on a rickshaw or a tuk-tuk. And that's a three-wheeled rickshaw. A three-wheeled rickshaw with, you know, basically the power, horsepower of two cylinders. You're probably looking at a lawnmower engine. And the fact that it's three-wheeled, only one wheel in the front, that would actually be illegal in Canada because they would all have four tires or four wheels. Uh, tell us about that. How did it go? We went well. Uh, we took 17 days to do it. We finished dead last. Uh, but we were also the only team that saw the most. We had the longest route of, of them all. Um, there was a team who actually ended up finishing in four days, but all they did is driving and they cheated by putting on a train. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It was interesting. And that kind of led you to, uh, or that directly led you then to your next race, which you did, what, a year, year and a half later? Yeah. So last July, on July 20, we set... Um, we drove from London, UK, all the way to Mongolia and back, and we went through um, 36 countries. Wait, wait, stop. Oops. You just said London <laughs> to Mongolia. Yes. How many miles or kilometers was that? Uh, from London to Mongolia, it's 22,400 kilometers, and then put up another 10,000 kilometers to come back. Because we had to come back to be the first one to come back. Because everybody goes to Mongolia, gives up because it's a hell of a drive, and instead, Jess and I decided that, well, you know, challenge accepted. We're going to be the first women to drive back. To put the distance in perspective, because I'm still hanging on that, I think it's something like if you were to take a flight from London to New York, it would be like 3,000, 3,500 miles. So that's like doing London to New York by car, what, seven times, give or take. Technically, is one third of the planet to get there and another one third of the planet to get back. Jeez, um, what uh, kind of car were you doing that in? So we were doing it in a 1.6 liter Subaru XB, which is here a Subaru Crosstech. Okay, so that that's the next thing I wanted to jump into because when you guys went and did this, I mean, that's quite an expense to undertake. You took four months off of work, but you did it the smart way. You leveraged your marketing talents and you went and you got sponsors. Uh, how many sponsors did you have for that? We ended up having 29 sponsors. Um, the way we went at it is to look what was really needed. Of course, a car, um, camping gear, um, the Lorm GPS, 
we had like we had a list of things we needed the essentials and then well we got a list of fun things that would be fun to have also so wait starting at the beginning there you managed to get the car from subaru what was that conversation like it was pretty interesting how I went at it. Um, Jess was set on say, getting some of the sponsors, and I was dead, you know, I was so decisive to get us a car um, because I didn't want to buy a car to then having the problem to sell it as well because it would have to stay in, in Europe. Mm. And so I tackled in every single car maker there is out there, not only here in Canada, but also in the UK because we were starting in the UK. So I went, I used... Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it, like any social media came very handy because obviously I can't use the, you know, my personal context, uh, contacts. So it was more important for me to say, okay, let's do it on our own. Let's do it with my Gmail account, which kind of like sets, you know, it's a bigger challenge, mm. but ended up landing them. I sent an actual message through Facebook at Subaru UK and it kind of introduced to what we wanted to do and why we needed a car. And this guy, Ryan, who I'll never forget his name, he actually gave me the direct contact to the person at Subaru headquarters in Brussels. Wow. So, I mean, without going, did you guys have to go in and fly over and do a formal pitch or was this kind of all through Skype, phone, email? So the way all we did, I had an actual proposal uh, that we tailored for different um you know, brands that we were looking at. So it was really tailored and individual to them. Of course, we had what the, the idea was, what the rally is all about, who we are, et cetera. So the general idea of who we are, what we're doing, but we leverage opportunities knowing what countries they were going and we really tailored the opportunities for each brand. So whether it was a car, whether it was camping. So each of them felt like, okay, they're really talking to me and it's not a general pitch. And you named this car, what? Bugzilla, because she was covered in bugs. <laughs> so you probably, you came up with that name towards the latter part of the rally then. Yeah, I think it was in Georgia because it was covered. Georgia has a lot of insects and bugs and butterflies, you name it. So the car was just at one point got covered and it just came natural. So you went over to Brussels to pick up the car, drove it back to London and started there? Correct. So the steering wheel was still on the left-hand side, like we know? Yes. Okay. That was one of our requests, actually, because they asked us, do we want an automatic car? Do you want to ride? And uh, they, they gave us all the options. The only option they didn't give us is, like, the color of the car. And what color was the car? A white car. A white car. Uh, so did you go with the manual or the automatic? You know I'm going to ask that. <laughs> I went with manual. There's no way I would have driven to Mongolia with an automatic car. Did you get diesel or petrol? It was petrol. And the reasoning behind petrol, which I know a lot of people would say, why the hell would you drive almost 34,000 kilometers on diesel is because some of the countries that we went through either did not have diesel or would never ser serve diesel to foreigners. They wouldn't serve diesel to foreigners? No, it's because diesel is more precious because there's a lot of trucks and they keep it for their own nationals. Oh. Countries like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, where anything you, that ends in Stan. Did you, okay, where did you find that fact out randomly or did Subaru say this is why we think it's a bad idea to give you a diesel? Subaru had no idea of anything. Like we basically told him this is what we're doing. This is the reasoning behind him. There was a lot of research. He does, one thing about doing a rally to Mongolia, you just have to plan ahead of time. I wanted to do this for three years and it took us about a year to plan everything. So there's a ton of research. You just don't pick up and just go. Although like, you know, everybody would like that. It's borders will happen. So you kind of have to plan a lot of the stuff, especially visas. So actually, yeah, that was my next question. Uh, how many countries did you hit again? And how many of them required uh, visas? 
So we hit 36 countries, and I believe we needed about eight visas. Some of them were double entry, uh, like Russia, um, double entry visas that are extremely expensive. Um, most of the stand countries do not have uh, embassies here in Canada, so we had to always like trustworthy send our passports to the states. That's in a New freak. York. Okay, that's really freaky. I've done that too, where you're just kind of like, "Hey, I can't travel. They have my passport. Hopefully, it comes back." Well, it's funny you say that because when they went to the embassy of Uzbekistan in New York, they didn't come back. So we had to redo everything all over again. Oh, no. And was that the <laughs> one of the last countries you sent it? That, uh, that was the last country we sent it to. And we were one week away from going. Oh, God. So how did you get that sorted out then? It's called paying a lot of rush visas that cost <laughs> a lot of money. And we had to do them in London paying pounds now. So even more expensive. Mm, well, I mean... I like the way Turkey does visas for Canadians. You don't have to get it here. They just stop you as soon as you get there and go cash if you want in. If not, you just wait there. There you go. Uh, okay, so tell us a little bit more about some of the other sponsors. I know you've had, uh, you had 29 of them, but a couple of the other ones, there was uh, – you had Wreck-It Ben Kaiser. I mean I followed you guys on Instagram and Facebook throughout your entire journey. Frank, we did put that Frank's Red Frank's, Hot everywhere. Yeah, I know. Frank's Red Hot uh, went just about everywhere. Uh, some of the other ones, uh, there was the one company, help me out here, where um, they built a wash basin within the actual bag. You guys were doing a lot of laundry oh, yeah, like that. That's, that's it's called the Scrubber Bag. It's actually a company from Australia, and it's a perfect if you're a backpacker, that's a really perfect tool. Everybody knows, like, you know, where you're backpacking, you're going to use the sink. But we were camping most of the time, so it was easier for us to have. It's basically a bag. It's like a normal like, bag that you put all your clothes in, and then you wash everything in. And you guys made a lot of branded videos for your partners. We did. We made branded videos. It was all about... Um, when we dealt with each brand, what we would propose to them, it, they would also come back and say, I would, maybe would like you to either do a blog or a video or just like a manual how to use my product, etc. Um, so we had a list of everybody what we had promised to. So over like the days, like we, you know, obviously tons of kilometers going by, but you still have to remember that we promised this and we promised that and this in this country and that in that other country. So we always had a list and, you know, making sure that we were providing them. And obviously, like, tons of social media, for example. Like, Frank's Rec thought our idea behind it, they have their tagline, which is, I put that in everywhere on everything, and we had the thing that we put that thing on everywhere. So they kind of liked that. We had a map. We, when we pitched them, we had a map with all the dots of the sauce everywhere mm. in all the countries. And because Canada is so multicultural, it kind of resonated to have all these dishes that we would eat anyways over there, but just with a bottle of Frank's Red Hot next to it. Okay. Uh, and when you got out there, I mean – uh, not sure how to ask this question. Were there any sort of hairy situations where moments where you're like, maybe this trip wasn't a good idea, or maybe we shouldn't have gone down this road or through this country? Um, well, Uzbekistan after the passport was the one we dreaded the most. Um, fear factors, not many. We nearly got killed once by a truck <laughs> in Turkmenistan. It's all also, you know, on camera as well, although we haven't posted about it. Um, I, we believe that the trucker fell asleep and was really about like to nail us full on. Oh no! Um, so that was a scary situation. Um, we did get stuck in the sand, so that was kind of. It was more fun to you know stuff happens, you just deal with it. I don't think like you know nothing happened. I mean, 
Jess did break her arm, but we dealt with it. It was just like things happen and they can happen here, here even at home. It's just a matter like we were on the road and we just accepted everything. And with the car, though, like, what did you guys do for maintenance? Because I imagine you probably had to do 20, what was it, 22,000 miles? You had to have done at least one oil change. Three oil changes. Three oil changes. Yeah. It was, that's it. Three oil changes. That's all it required. We had one flat tire, but blue, actually, on the Pamir Highway, the rock. We had a rock and the tire blue. So that was interesting uh, to change the tire, basically, at the edge of you know, a cliff that leads to a river into Afghanistan. So that was, you know, fun and weird situations, but that was all the car required, really. Uh, Subaru, used, are any of your sponsors using you in their press material? Because this is a wonderful story. Uh, they are. Well, obviously, Subaru is. Um, we have made four, I think we made like 15 headlines across the world um, on, on our trip. Uh, we're on different magazines across Europe. Um, in May, there'll be a magazine here in Canada as well as the actual Subaru uh, magazine that has the story and will launch actually the next adventure that we're doing with them. There's two new ones, but I'm, I'm only going to give away one. Okay. You know what? Just between you and me, pretend no one listens to this podcast. <laughs> okay. You won't give it away. Uh, that's really about it for today. Thank you so much for this. Actually, one last question. I always like to close off the podcast with this. Uh, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing? I'd be an adventurer. Great answer. Anyways, hey, Corinne, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thanks, Victor. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. And be sure to catch up with other episodes at soundcloud.com slash mediapeoplepodcast. And follow me at Vic Genova on Twitter.